Come on, somebody say, praise the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Woo, I'm excited. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. What a beautiful song. What a great time in worship. How many enjoyed the acoustic set? Wasn't that beautiful? We, we, we didn't mean to change it up like that. Second service, we'll have the backup drummer here. But wow, just powerful hearing your voices today. I may have to do that another time, man. Just get them used to singing out, you being the instrument. Well, we're getting into a new sermon series on the book of 1 John. And John the Apostle is known as the Apostle of Love. That's because he speaks so much about love in his gospel and in his epistle. Now remember, a gospel is about the life of Jesus. Think of it like a narrative, a story about someone, and it's Jesus. And think about an epistle as a letter written by an apostle to a group of Christians. So John the apostle wrote a gospel, and he also wrote letters to the people he was pastoring. So the apostles were being obedient to go out and preach the word. That was what they were supposed to do. And Jesus said to them in the gospel of John, I'll give you further instruction that you will give to my people. And so that's why we believe that the epistles are equal in authority to what Jesus taught in the gospels. So we don't just look at the red letters of the Bible, which would be typically a version of the Bible, like the King James would put Jesus's words in red letters. We do not look just at the red letters and say, that's all I follow. We also follow the apostles' teachings because Jesus said red letter. He said he would give them his teaching. And so the canon which basically means the rule of authority, our canon of the scriptures include the gospels and the epistles. Can I hear an amen to that? And so John the apostle is known as the apostle of love because in his gospel, he talks so much about the message of Jesus's love. Now, remember, when you read the gospels, they're like a surround sound. They're not contradictory. They're complementary. So Jesus talked and taught for three and a half years. He talked and he taught for three and a half years. And if you took all of the words of the Gospels and put them together, on average, a man would speak them within two to three days. So just two to three days of information, speaking-wise, is contained in the Gospels, representing three and a half years of his teaching ministry. So what does that mean? That means that as the apostles were writing these Gospels, they were doing so based on the Holy Spirit, picking out what highlights, what things God wanted them to share. And so John, the way God was using John, was to talk so much about love, you know, God so loved loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What gospel is that found in? That's the gospel of John. Where at? John 3, 16. And he talks about Jesus at the Last Supper. Doesn't really mention anything about the body and blood, but he mentions Jesus washing feet, saying that he loves his disciples, and for that reason, he's laying his life down for them. It's not that communion isn't important. It's just that we know from the other gospel writers that had been mentioned, and so John brings out something that had not been mentioned in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He mentions how Jesus has a real one-on-one with the fellas, washes their feet and says, guys, I'm doing this because I love you. No greater love has a man than this than to lay down his life for his what? What's the next word? For his friends. That's, that's in the gospel of what? What gospel is that in? The gospel of John. It's on the screen as well if you forget who we're talking about right now. Somebody say the gospel of John. If you wonder why I repeat myself a lot, it's because of moments like that. Pray for your pastor. Patience. Patience, Lord. Yes, in the Gospel of John, it's, it, it gives us a narrative that we didn't have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about the love of Jesus that was motivating him to go to the cross. And when we get to the epistle of John, the first one, there's actually three epistles, first, second, and third John. We see that John continues to talk about love. Have you ever heard this phrase before, God is love? Well, that comes from this book. 
John wrote that. So that's why we call him the apostle of love. Now, what's interesting about this is that as loving as John is, as as much as he emphasized this emotional, spiritual feeling we call love, in his epistle, he is the most black and white preacher of them all. At the very beginning, he says it's light and darkness, good and evil. And then he begins to teach in such ways that literally, when you put it up on Facebook in this culture, people will say, I disagree with it. We've had people in this church post up word for word parts of the epistle of John and people who are supposedly Christians argue with them saying, I don't believe that statement. I could, I could tell you her name right now. She put up a verse from 1 John. It was word for word. And the Christian, because I know they're a Christian, well, at least they claim to be a Christian because they came to our church. And they argued with her saying, I don't agree with this. That's how black and white he is. And so today's message is light versus dark. Or, you know, the good versus evil. And as we go through this book, I want you to notice that it's always good or evil, light or darkness. And we'll have various messages, but today's message is actually on the theme of the entire book. So let's go to the notes. I, on the way here in my commute, is about 30, 35 minutes. I listen to it at double speed four times. Five chapters in this book. I've already listened to it this morning five, uh, four times. You guys can do this. I want to ask you every a week to at least read a chapter or the entire book, audio, or just normal reading. Be in the sermon with me. Can I hear an amen to that? I mean, here's some basic info. It's written by the Apostle John. The audience is believers in Western uh, Asia Minor, and so that part of the world. Let's keep going, uh, gentlemen. Need to, number three, the date is somewhere between, thank you, 85 to 95 AD. So John wrote the Gospel of John, three epistles, and the book of Revelation. We believe that this is somewhere after the gospel before Revelation. Revelation is written by John on an island as he has been exiled because of being persecuted by the Roman government. They had tried to kill him. It didn't work. And then they said, we're just going to force you to go to an island and live in exile. And that's where we believe on the island of Patmos, he gets the revelation of Jesus and the second coming. That's why it's called Revelation. It's not called Revelation because it's scary. It's called the Revel book of Revelation because it's revealing to us Jesus in the midst of all of the, the, the blood as high as a horse's head, the angels are coming down judging the earth, bulls of wrath, four horsemen of the apocalypse. What you're supposed to see in the book of John is Jesus. Can I hear any meant to that? So this is after the gospel, before the book of Revelation, and we do believe that the other letters come later, but we don't know for sure. Uh, they didn't have Facebook posts to have the actual date and time on there. Wouldn't that be cool if they did? So we have to do our best to understand that. And if you want to take the theme, as I've kind of already shared with you, this came from uh, a book called the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. Uh, he says it like this. John writes to assure believers of the certainty of their faith and to refute heretical doctrine, teaching that Jesus was not fully human and fully divine. And so a lot of what the good versus evil the light versus dark is within the religious context, people trying to fake the funk, give a different version of Christianity. And so he's really laying it down and telling people, if you believe this false version of Christianity, you're not really following Christ. Now, could you imagine arguing with John the Apostle about whose version of Christianity was right? <laughs> I mean, just think about the kind of pride you would have to have. John was one of the main three disciples. It was John, Peter, and James. James was the brother of John. Peter had a brother named Andrew, and they were disciples. So there were two sets of disciples, Peter and Andrew, and James and John. I guess Andrew was sleeping a little bit because James got that prominent place, which is John's brother, not Andrew, Peter's brother. And at the Last Supper, it says that John laid his head on Jesus' chest and asked him who would betray him. So he was that close to Jesus. So imagine you get a letter from John correcting your false doctrine, and yet you're arguing arguing with him. That will show you pride will make a fool out of you. Just like in the days of Moses and the Egyptians, 
if God, if the God of the Israelites has already done all the plagues, and now you're chasing them down, and you see that that God has split a Red Sea so those people can go on to the other side, what ought you not to do? You ought not to run your behind into that Red Sea. But the man did it anyway, okay? And that's what pride will do to all of us. It will make a fool out of us. So here, John the Apostle, one of the closest human beings to Jesus ever, is having to correct people and say, y'all don't have it right. Let me remind you about what this is. So I don't claim to be John, but I have his words here today. So I would like you to humble yourself if you're listening to this and you find yourself on the other side of John's words. If you are the one that John is correcting, and I'm just a messenger today giving you the message, if you find yourself on the other side of the apostle of love's rebuke, humble yourself and repent. Amen? Don't be like the prideful person on Facebook that wants to argue with John's words. And be like, oh, I don't agree with that. It should have been said like this. Oh, it's, it's, it's always going to be both and or something. Like you just, it's too tough for you to take it as it is. There are both and things in the scriptures. But this is take it or leave it. This is, this is not, you get to be a sinner and saint at the same time. You're going to, so how many of you read the book and know where I'm going with this? You already know the book. This is a tough book. Some of you are just like, I don't know what he's talking about. How is it going to get like that? It's going to get like that in a few minutes. John's going to basically call a lot of people in America liars. He's not politically correct. He's going to set some of you free because you've been trying to think about how to understand Christianity in the modern context. And you're like, I know I'm a Christian and I'm doing my best to live it out, but I see these other people and they're not really doing it. What does that make them? John will tell you what it makes them. It makes them liars. Are you ready to get into the book? All right, now that I sparked your interest, let's go. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and touched, we proclaim concerning the word of life. Isn't that beautiful? The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now let's go to verse 1. John does not sound anything like Paul. Paul's like telling you his name. I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. I'm writing to you at such and such a city. Grace and peace. How is everybody doing over there? John is not like that at all. John is like that which was from the beginning. Now, that word beginning, where did we hear that before? In the gospel of John. Let's slide over to the scriptures. John chapter 1 verse 1 quickly. And understand, John has a habit of jumping right to the beginning. Why does John want us to always understand the beginning, or in the Greek, arche? As we get the word archaeology or archaic, he says arche, in the beginning. Why does he always want us to know that? Because John wants our worldview to be firmly placed on God. God was there at the beginning. You were not. So everything he does, he gets to do for his own glory. Get with the program. In the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now scroll down to verse 14, please. Who is this word? The Bible says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Go back to the notes, please. Look at verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked at, we've touched, we're proclaiming the word of life. Now, don't you just love a good preacher to help you understand things? In his gospel, he talks about a beginning, 
And then he talks about the person called the Word. And he says that person called the Word had all life in him. And through him, all life was given. Now in his epistle, he combines those concepts to be get together. Beginning was the Word of life. Isn't that powerful? Jesus is the Word of life. And notice here, right in verse 1, he's wanting you to understand this is not myth. A lot of times today in, in zeitgeist culture, there's a movie out like that, you know, in this conspiracy theory culture, people want to compare Jesus to myth and say the disciples were doing that. John is very clear. He is not writing myth. How much more clearer could he have been? We have heard him. We have seen him. We have looked at him. We have touched him. This is not about Mithra. This is not about Zeus. This is not about Hercules. So now for anyone to put the category of gospel, uh, the, the gospel writings or the epistles in the category of myth are calling these people liars. You're just calling them liars. So when we're on the streets and someone says, well, I don't believe that, they were just lying. They now have to back that up with proof. Give me proof to why they're lying. You just can't just spout out they were lying. I've asked people that on the streets. Well, why would they lie? I don't know. Why do people lie? No, no, you don't ask me a question when I'm asking you a question. You give proof to why good Jewish boys would lie. Do you know any Jewish people right now walking around saying they've touched God? Jewish people are moral people. In their society, they uphold the Ten Commandments. Why would Jewish men walk around telling lies? In their gospel, they actually tell the story of his death, and most of them were scared, not even there. By the way, John was the only one at the foot of the cross with Mother Mary. Isn't that beautiful? But most of them weren't even there. They were so scared. And then when he raised from the dead, the gospels say they doubted. He had to convince them. It went on and on, you know, doubting Thomas, etc. So they don't even look like the heroes of the stories. They look like the Oompa Loompas. Why, why are they lying? What reason do they have to lie? If Jesus had, in fact, existed and died, which all historians agree on, the majority, rather, agree on that, what, what would they benefit out of pretending that their Savior raised from the dead? They themselves would be killed. They would be ostracized from their own Jewish community who helped Jesus be killed by the Romans, and they would continue to be hated by the Romans who killed their Savior. What does a good Jewish boy with a family have to gain out of this? What do they have to gain? They're not a military force like Islam trying to take you over and then force a religion on you that's going to change your worldviews. These are people literally being hunted down and killed for a belief that they have based on a historical event. This is not just a dream, a vision, a hallucination of Jesus. How much more different could he, uh, how much more better could he have said it? It's so different than a hallucination. He says, we've seen it with our eyes. We've tasted, uh, we've touched him, not tasted him. Uh, forgive me for saying that. We have touched him. We've looked at him. This is not a vision. This is not a hallucination. So now, listen, guys, anytime you come up with a theory of how Christianity started, other than the one that we're presenting, you have to have your evidence now, too. You don't just get to come out and just make a bunch of uh, arguments and claims and say they lied, and they lied to have power, and they lied so they could get rich, and they lied because people lie all the time about religion. Okay, well, where's your proof that these people lie? Where's your proof that these people are like those who lie about religion? Where is your proof? What, what did they get from their lies? Did they set up a television ministry to get holy, sell holy water for $9.99? Were they given tours of Jesus' grave? You know, I mean, how did they benefit? Why would they lie? Now, do I have reasons to tell you they wouldn't lie? Absolutely. Starting with, they told us they didn't lie. I know that sounds like that's pretty basic, but John, I just take to be trustworthy. He's taking time to tell us something. He says it happened. Okay, so just right there, I have no reason to doubt him. Number two, as they begin to tell their stories, it fits perfectly with everybody else's story. 
As a matter of fact, Paul is going to become a Christian in the middle of this, and Paul was a Jew who was part of the ones persecuting Jesus, and his story about Jesus lines up perfectly with those who were best friends with Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, Paul was not hanging out with Jesus like John. He was a Jew. He was going to the Jewish school at that time with Gamaliel. Yet when Paul gets saved and he comes to meet with James and John and Peter and them, they're talking the same story. They're actually describing the same kind of Jesus, and they're using the same scriptures. Yet, yet Paul was not there for any of the life of Jesus. So number one, I take them at their word. Number two, what they're saying corroborates with other people's stories. And then number three, they gave their life for their belief in this. Now, once again, people have said, well, people give their lives for false religions all the time. You know, when they were pulling out hearts in the Aztec culture, saying, you know, this was for their God, and, and, then, and then they would fight for their God and die, or the Romans, or et cetera. They died believing in that stuff. Isn't that the same here? No, they did not die. Those people did not die believing what they believed was a lie. They actually said, no, we believe when we rip out hearts, it's a good thing. You don't like us doing that to your villagers. We'll go fight you. We'll die for that. They believed that. So they weren't walking around going, I know I'm telling a lie, number one. Number two, they have a hope in something. Like, by doing this, I'll get this. By flying a plane into a building, I hope, I believe, I'll go to paradise. That is not the same right here. Number one, these guys are not convincing themselves of a lie. And number two, this is not something they hope for. They're not saying, I hope I get to see him. He's dead, but I hope I get to touch him. He's dead, but I hope I get to see him, but he's dead. I hope I get to hear him. No, they're saying, we touched him. We saw him. We heard him. They are dying for a truth that they have already experienced. It would be like someone coming to you going, you know, about your husband or wife or mom or dad, you know, do they exist? And you would be like, yes, they exist. And if they said, well, we don't want them to exist. That bothers us. We want you to deny that they exist. You would say, sorry, I can't do that. I have touched them. I have looked at them. I know they exist. If they got so angry at you and said, we're now going to kill you unless you deny that they exist, you would say, you have to kill me then. I don't know what else to tell you. They exist. That's literally what's going on with the apostles. They are saying he exists. And not only that, he rose from the dead. I didn't believe him either. Like, imagine you're Thomas. You're like, I was just like you. I didn't believe that either. But I saw him. I, 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 I held him. I handled him. I touched him. I saw him. He is who he said he is. So when we look at Christianity... It is, a, it is based on a testimony of miraculous stories that, yes, we weren't there. We have to decide whether or not we take it by faith. But what we take by faith should come from good evidence. You take by faith that that chair is going to work and not fall down on you because you have good evidence that chairs that look like that hold you up. I believe these people's testimonies. I have good evidence to now put my faith in what I cannot see, which is Jesus walking on water, raising from the dead. I didn't see that. That is true. But I have good reason to believe these folks. And then when I have believed, I have experienced very similar things. Though I haven't walked with the physical Jesus, touch the physical Jesus. I have experienced the Holy Spirit who represents Jesus to me. And many of us here have testimonies of experiencing the risen Lord Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like he said he would. So verse 1 sets it straight. In the beginning, Jesus was there. He came to be with us. We saw him. We touched him. And that life came. Why? So that we could have eternal life. Look at verse 2. Somebody say eternal life. Eternal life is another concept of John. Go to John 3.16, please. In John 3.16, that famous scripture, it talks about eternal zoe, eternal life. Not just existing kind of life, but an eternal joy-filled, experiencing the highest, highest level of life. 
Zoe is the greatest kind of life. And it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? Eternal life. Go back to the notes, please. Do we see him tying together his gospel? And so he's testifying to that. He's telling us that if Jesus did rise from the dead and ascend to heaven, we now can trust that we're going to have eternal life. Because sometimes we think to ourselves, well, if I was there and I touched and I saw Jesus, then I would have no doubts about the future. That's not true. Everybody still has doubts about the future because you could experience all that and still wonder, is he really coming back? Is he really going to have me in, in his mind and in his interest for the future? Maybe he was an alien playing a trick on me. Maybe he was one of the gods like Loki of that time, you know, and, 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 and shape-shifted to make himself look like a Jewish guy. Maybe the Indian folks are right. Maybe he's just one incarnation of Brahma, and he, he's, he, you know, he's going to forget about us, or this is not true. They could have had just as many doubts that could have been convincing to them as you would have doubts now. So they had to put their trust in who Jesus was, that he was who he said he was, he was going to do what he said he was going to do, and that when they died, when their body died, they were going to be in the presence of Jesus as they knew him on earth, and they were going to live with him forevermore. And that took a lot of boldness. That took a lot of, of zeal for them to do that in the face of the Roman Empire. That's why when John eventually goes in, in exile to the island of Patmos and he sees Jesus and has revealed the whole plan of the end, that settled it for them, and that's why it's in the canon of our scripture, because now we know how it ends. Verse 3, we proclaim to you that which we have seen and heard. He repeats himself, but listen to what he says this time, so that you may have fellowship with us. Somebody say fellowship. Thank you. So John is writing this so that we can all be ship, uh, fellows in the ship, that we can all hang out in the same place. He had a special place with Jesus, and now he's saying, where I was, you can be too. How many have ever been on a ship before? How many have been on a cruise ship before? How many know there's certain compartments and places that you can't go on those kind of places, in those big ships? But here we're getting the access to not only the ship, but the same parts of the ship that the captain gets to go to. We get to go right where the captain's at. We get to go right where, you know, the VIP seating is. We get to have fellowship with John, and John is in fellowship with Jesus. And so if John gets to do that, we get to do that. And basically, he's like introducing us to his best friend. He's saying, I want you to know him like I do. I want you to hang out with him like I do. I want you to come to the VIP section like I do. I know him. Now, at this time, no one knew these stories. So he's telling them these stories, hoping that they'll have fellowship, not only with him as a person, but obviously the one he represents. So he says, I want you to fellowship with us. And I think Jesus would even be included in that us. But even if there, he just meant the apostles. He clarifies now, and our fellowship, so our uh, apostleship, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And so we write this to you to make our joy complete. So notice this. You will not have complete joy unless you make it a part of your life to introduce people to Jesus. John knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, but if he just went up on a mountainside, became a monk, kept it to himself, he would still be missing a portion of joy in his life. Notice that even though he has all of this with Jesus, all of this benefit of being in fellowship with Jesus, he says that something is completed in his joy by reaching out to them. I wonder, I just wonder, if a lot of people are depressed, anxious, without joy in this culture, even those who claim Christianity, because they do not make it a part of their purpose to share Jesus with others. Come on, I just wonder if there's anybody here today that you're struggling with the joy of living, you're struggling with knowing who you are in Christ, having confidence, a self-identity of self-worth, you're struggling with that because you've been so inward-focused that you have not been outward-focused. Because if John the Apostle said something is completing by me reaching out to you, I can tell you, you won't be complete unless you reach out.
There is a completing of the joy. The joy is full, and Paul talked this same way. It's full when we're giving it out. It's like a pond can become stinky and nasty, but a river is always fresh. Why? Because it's flowing. It has a source going through it, and oftentimes in our spirituality, we could become like a pond, like a little dirty puddle because we just get so inward in our own world, in our own headspace, in our own problems, and God is saying, let my river flow through you. Let it touch others. Go to a life group and share something beneficial. Reach out to your neighbor and tell them something good about me. That's God is teaching us that through John. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. So that's his introduction. Let's go to verse five. This is the message we have heard from him talking about Jesus, now known as the word of life, and declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. He's only gone in a few verses. Now he's calling out people as liars. Welcome to the book of 1 John, the apostle of love. He's a gentle man, but yet he's bold. God is using him to teach us the simple truth that God is light, no darkness in him. How many get that? It's, it's easy to understand, so keep following his thoughts. And so if you say you love God, you're following Jesus, and now you are at the same time living in darkness, what's the problem? You're lying. You're lying about following Jesus. Does everybody get that? If we claim, he's going to use that phrase, if we claim a few times and then refute these claims that he's been hearing. So if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. He is refuting the claim that was popular at his time that I can love Jesus and have my sin too. That's the claim he's refuting. Have you heard that claim? Have you seen it lived out in people's lives? That God just loves us just the way we are, and he wants us just to stay that way? Yes, God loves you just the way you are, but too much to let you stay that way. So God is inclusive, too. People talk about, oh, God's inclusive. You know, he brought in the prostitute. He didn't judge him in that way. He brought in this. He brought in that. Yeah, he was inclusive so that when you got in, you would be changed. Radical transformation. He didn't bring in the prostitute to say, keep on prostituting, baby, but I got your back on judgment day. He didn't bring in the Roman soldier who was oppressing to say, well, I forgive you and I'll keep forgiving you as you having slaves and all of that. No, what he was teaching them was in my inclusion, in my welcoming, I want there to be transformation. And so that's why uh, John summarizes the entire gospel that he wrote in terms he's never said to us before. He has never said that sentence. God is light, and in him there's no darkness. But he says that's the message we've heard. Well, if that's the message we've heard, John, why have we not heard that exact expression of it in either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or your gospel? What is he doing? He is summarizing the entire, uh, you know, the entire song, as it were, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He is harmonizing the entire thing, and he says, do you want me to tell you what Christianity looks like? God is light. There's no darkness. Live like light. That's the entire summary of Christianity right there. And then he says, if you don't get that and you're still living in darkness, making excuses for your sin, you don't know the man and whose chest I laid my head on. You don't know the one who bled on that cross as I watched him die. You don't know that one who spent 40 days with us before he ascended to heaven. You don't know him because you're lying. I know him. That would be like as if someone here was saying, I know Joe. But then you started saying opposite things about Joe. You know, Joe loves golf and Joe, Joe loves this. and Joe. You'd be like, Joe don't love any of that stuff. 
what are you talking about? You know, you, you don't know the Joe I'm thinking of. And that's what John is saying. If you're, if you're saying you're a Christ follower, but you chill with darkness, you're nothing like Jesus. But yet, look what he tells us. When we walk in the light, as he's in the light, as we have fellowship with each other and with Jesus, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from how many sins? From all sin. So this idea of, well, then um, then who's perfect? How can I be a Christian? No, the Bible doesn't say you make yourself perfect, then become a Christian. That's like cleaning your house and then bringing over the maid or washing your car and then taking it to a car wash. No, we're not saying that you have to do better now to change yourself, to be loved. No, we're saying you come with your dirty, filthy sins as all of us have, but you let him purify you from all your sin. So all sin is purified from the Christian's life. So think about it. The moment you get saved, it's like your dirty water is filtered and it's pure. That is the default of Christianity. It's not going from dirty to clean, dirty to clean. It's clean and remaining clean. Now, he's going to answer it in just a moment. What if we do sin now? What if we do get dirty? He's going to teach you, number one, that is not to be your habit. But even if that happens, God will cleanse you again. But remember, the being cleansed is not what Christianity is about, continually being cleansed. It's about remaining cleansed. It's like walking on a tightrope that has a net beneath you. The net is there for you in case you fall, not for you to jump off of it and start doing a trampoline on the net. Christianity is not about continually living in repentance. It's about living free from the things you and I have repented from. That's what Christianity is about. That's what following Christ is about, living free from the sin, being purified from the sin, being opposite of the sin, holy, righteous, good, no darkness at all, like your Father, like the Son, like the Spirit. Can I hear an amen to them? Now look at verse 8. Because now he's going to break it down because there was actually two kinds of false claims. The first kind of claim was the person that says, you know what? I can keep sinning and live for Jesus. But there's another false claim he's going to address. See if you can pick it up. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. What is the next false claim at this time? People actually denying that they were even sinning. So imagine you're talking to a Roman and you go, hey, uh, you're supposed to just be married to your wife, no orgies, no homosexuality. You're not supposed to commit adultery. That's a sin. And then the person goes, I haven't sinned. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm without sin according to you because my religion doesn't believe that. He's now saying, you're deceiving yourselves if you think you are not sinning against God and don't have Jesus in your life. Then the next thing he says is when we confess our sins, we are, we are purified. So he reminds us of that. But then now he says, if we claim we have never sinned. So that's a third false claim. And the third false claim would be, as I've heard some teachers teach now, they come into Christianity confessing their sins, repenting, but then they think that they've learned something new, and that is when Jesus died on the cross, all sin was taken care of. Therefore, I have really never sinned. I've only just done things he didn't like because technically sin was taken away. So they come up with a complicated system. Let me try to help you so I can refute it. But it is a little bit complicated. The way they look at it is, when Jesus died on the cross, did he die for past, present, and future sins? Yes, he doesn't have to die again. So it was for all sins, right? Now, if sin was paid for, can you technically be sinning moving forward if the debt's already been paid? That's how they set it up. So if the debt's already been paid, you've already been given an Amex without a limit, can you ever go in debt? You know, that's their point. So if the debt has already been paid, can I go into debt? That's the whole point. If sins have already been dealt with, can I really ever sin? It's been done away with. And then they take it one step further and say, sin comes from the consciousness of the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. So when you're conscious of your own sin, you're not really being conscious of Jesus fulfilling the law. 
And so now we as Christians shouldn't think of ourselves ever having sinned. We shouldn't think if we do something now wrong, it's sin. All we should ever do is just think about Jesus, the blood, and what he did for us. I know you're probably thinking to yourself, who believes that nonsense? It's actually a popular teaching today in certain circles, and, and it was popular back then. So all three of these false claims are refuted. Go back up just a little bit, and let's make sure we catch it. So the one who claims to live in God but lives in darkness, they're a liar. That claim has been refuted. That would be similar to what we would call lukewarm Christians. They say they love Jesus, but they're not living like it. The number two false claim that's rebuked is in verse 8. If you say that you don't have sin, you don't have a problem with sin because you don't believe the law of God, you deceive yourself. You are in sin. You have sin. It doesn't matter what kinds of sins you or I have done. We have all sinned, the Bible says in Romans 3.23, and fallen short of the glory of God. And then the last false claim in verse 10 that he refutes is the claim that now you think you're so spiritual that you believe in something like universalism and that now you don't ever have to think that you've sinned because Jesus died on the cross. You make out Jesus to be a liar. Because even in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaking to the church, he tells them to repent of sins. So the way I say it like this, I may not be sinless, but I sin less because Christ made me sinless. Okay, I'm going to say it again. I may not be sinless, but I sin less because Christ made me sinless. So in my nature, I'm sinless, purified from all sin. That does not mean I still cannot sin. I can sin. So that means I'm not sinless in that sense. But whenever I do sin, I am forgiven of all my sins, counted as sinless. Does everybody get that? I may not be sinless, but I sin less since Jesus has made me sinless. So the idea is I obey the law of God because internally I have been purified. If I don't obey the law of God and I become defiled or take on sin, God wants to forgive me to restore me to that place of purification where all sin is done away with, where I'm nothing but light on the inside, nothing but purity, nothing but righteousness. Do you see those words being mentioned here? Do you see the words there? Let's go back up. I want to hear an amen from everybody. Go back up to the other passage, please. Look at what it says right here. He appeared so that we could have fellowship. Now let's go to the next part, verse 5. In him is no darkness. So if we're in him, there's no darkness. Everybody say, no darkness. And it says it pure, he purifies us by his blood through all, from all of our sin. Let's keep going. Then the Bible says that he purifies us from all unrighteousness. That means if all unrighteousness is gone, what does that make me? righteous. Amen. That's how we understand it. Purified, light, righteous. We are no longer darkness. We're no longer sinful. We're no longer unrighteous. How many believe first John today? Amen. Let's go to chapter two, verse one. Remembering chapters and verses were only added later at a point in history, just so we could mark our places in the Bible, but we're going to finish his thought here for the day. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. What is the purpose of him going through all of that? So we do not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Do you see how he ties it together now? If as a Christian you were to sin, don't freak out. Don't think that Christianity didn't work, that somehow darkness is more powerful than light, that, it, you know, that somehow you didn't do something wrong. No, at that point, if a Christian sins, we are to say, I'm still safe because I have an advocate with the Father. Jesus is still there for me to forgive me of my sins. So people have tried to take this and say, well, once you're saved, you're always saved. You can never lose salvation. That is not true. But what is true about what they say is that you cannot sin your way out of salvation if you're truly repenting. 
That's why David, even though he committed adultery and murder, didn't lose his salvation because in Psalm 51, he repented, but he feared that he could. That's why he says in the Psalm, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He understood that if he lived in his unrepentive sin as a rebellious person, he would be defiling the grace of God and be cut off. Jesus talked about being cut off in John 15, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, who I believe is a lecture from Paul recorded by one of his followers. You can see that, yes, salvation can be cut off, taken from you, but it's not taken from the one who just sins. The one who just sins can come and be forgiven because the same way you were forgiven to be brought into Christianity is the way you can be maintained in Christianity is by grace. So you're not saved by grace and then kept saved by your works. You're saved by grace through the blood of Jesus uh, and you're kept saved by the blood of Jesus. But at any point, if you decide you don't want the grace of Jesus, you want your sin just like one sin for Adam and Eve cut them off, your sin, no matter how small you think it can be, can cut you off. So a guy like David can be a murderer and adulterer and still remain saved, and you can just get bitter with your friends and be cut off from salvation. Because what's the difference? If the murderer, the adulterer truly repents, which means they are regretful, they are willing to accept their punishment, they, they don't try to wash over, I'm a murderer, put me in jail the rest of my life. Like, I get it, okay? Those people will be saved where the person who's bitter going, I don't have to forgive, I don't think they deserve the Bible says, and they won't be forgiven. And that's why on judgment day, there will be some surprises. Doesn't the Bible say from Jesus that many, many will say to me on that day, didn't we do such and such and such and such a thing? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. So now you might say, well, pastor, I'm a little bit fearful. Good. The Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You should take sin seriously. You should take how you interact with the Holy Spirit that's convicting you of sin very serious, but not to the point of condemnation. If when you sin, you now feel like you're no longer a Christian and you ought to just give up, that is a lie of the devil. He's trying to make you think that you're different, that God can't change you, that this is the way you're always going to be, and that you might as well just settle with it. That's not true. You're supposed to go back to a place like 1 John and go, he loves me. He hasn't stopped loving me. He's still my advocate. He still's got my back. And just like he took all the sins of the whole world, he can take this sin right now from me. Can I hear an amen? amen. Praise God for forgiveness. Forgiveness is not an excuse to keep sinning. Forgiveness is to be cleansed so you don't keep sinning. Do you see the difference? Don't use forgiveness as a get-out-of-jail-free card when everybody's bought up all the property in Monopoly and you got to stay in jail a little bit because you know if you keep playing, you're going to get blowed up. And then you just play it at the right time. No, this is not trying to be slick with God trying to get one over on him. This is to change you. Forgiveness is to transform us. And notice there's for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world have been paid for. Muslim sins have been paid for. Buddhist sins have been paid for. Atheist sins have been paid for. It's up to them if they receive the cleansing. That's why we're teaching everyone the gospel. Let's go to verse 3 now. Uh, he's going to get a little bit sassy again. Verse 3. We know. Somebody say, we know. Come on, say it like a Chicagoan. We know. Y'all know. know some stuff, Chicagoans. We, we street smart people here. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Now, where do you think John got that from? Go to his gospel, John 14, verse 15. Hang in here just a few moments and we'll be dismissing. Hang in here. It's getting to the conclusion and you're going to love it. I'm telling you, you're going to love it. John 14, 15. He said, we know we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Look at what Jesus said, red letters, reminding us of the words of Jesus in this translation. Jesus said, if you what? If you what? Love me, keep my commands. Go back to the epistle of John. Where do you think he got that from? He got it from his master. He got it from Jesus. He's saying, guys, you got to know this. 
If you say you know him, you got to keep his commands. Here he goes. You all ready? Come on, let's get ready. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, are you all ready for a test on your Facebook or social media? If you're willing to do it with me, we're going to not use the chapter or verse. We're just going to put up on our page, whoever claims to live in Jesus must live like Jesus. How many are willing to put this on your Facebook? It's a Bible verse. Let's put it there right now. Whoever claims to live in Jesus. Jesus must live like Jesus. Now I'm going to put the one with the mountains in the background. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must live like Jesus. Post. You can tag in Metro Praise if you want. Now this is what I want you to do. I want you to watch your friends and family, how they react to this. Let's see what kind of friends and family you have on social media. Let's see if anybody comes underneath this and goes, well, you know, nobody's perfect. So, you know, I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> or, or you know what? It, it should say, it should say whoever claims to live in Jesus will mostly, most of the time live like Jesus. Most of the time because nobody's perfect. Let's see. Don't tag me in it, but tag your life group leader in it. If it starts to get a little messy and we'll come help you out, we'll get your back. But let's just see now. We're not trying to set them up in a bad way. We're just trying to see how many amens and support from our social media community we can get over John's conclusion to our sermon today that whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. Now let's just stop and think about that as you're doing your social media. If it was based on perfection and that nobody is perfect is true, then John would be wrong. I'm going to say it again. If John is saying you have to live perfect on your own to show that you really follow Jesus, they would be right to correct us. But what are they not understanding if they don't agree with this they're not understanding. We have not said we're doing it apart from Jesus. I'm about ready to get excited. It says, whoever lives in him. It is right there, baby. It's an in him revelation. I'm not outside of him. I'm in him. I've been brought in to the power of the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son share their divinity with me. They share their perfection with me. I'm not on the outside trying to come in doing it on my own. I'm in Jesus. If you're in Jesus today, can I? I hear an amen. amen. That's why it says whoever lives in him must live as Jesus did. If you're in my house, you're going to eat like me. If you're in my house, you're going to dress like me. If you're in my house, you're going to have some of the same toys like me. You see, if you're in Jesus, you're going to be like Jesus. Hallelujah. You can't come into Jesus and not be transformed. You can't come into the power of the Holy Spirit and not be rearranged. Can you go into a hurricane and remain the same? Come on, can you go into a flood and remain the same? No, things get changed for the worse. But when you come into Jesus, things get changed for the better. Darkness is taken out. Light comes in. You are purified from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Glory. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. It is not us trying to do something for him. It's us living in him. In him we live and move and have our being. This is not just a religion you check off on a census like I'm a Christian. This is a relationship. 
This is a person on the inside of you living with you. So help people, not only on social media, but in your everyday life to understand what John was teaching us today. That's why there can be no darkness. If you're in the sun, is there any darkness in you? (laughs) Come on, you know what I'm saying. I mean, if you're in the water, is there any dryness on you? Come on, somebody. When you are in Christ, there's no unrighteousness. It's been purified. If you're having a tug of war holding on to it, he's going to give you a choice. It's your sin or it's his righteousness. And I've shared it with you before. You can come out of Christ. He even said that you can be snipped off as as a branch bearing bad fruit. But I don't want that for us here. I don't want to believe that for anybody here. I want to believe that we all want to stay in him. We don't want our sin. We don't want darkness. We want light. Band, would you come, please, all two of you this morning? Amen. Let's give it up for these faithful brothers today. Some of the folks fighting the flu, I heard, but God is good. Do you live like Jesus? That's a great way to end our sermon today. Do you live like Jesus? If you're here today and you're not living like Jesus, you are like us before we became Christians, and you can do what we have done and become a Christian. It's that simple. You can be forgiven of your sin. You may come from a background where you weren't taught the whole gospel, so this might be new to you. You might have been believing in Jesus in a lot of different ways, but you have not experienced him this way. Don't be prideful or arrogant about what he's asking you to do now. Just receive it. Just be like, okay, I didn't know that. I repent. My dad came from Catholicism and was born again. He was an altar boy. He went to church all the time. My grandmother went to church every day, mass and all of that. But if she wasn't living like Jesus or my dad wasn't living like Jesus, there needed to be a real change, a real transformation, not just religion. It's like going to the museum every day and learning about air flight, you know, the the museum of flight and and science and industry. You can go there every day. That doesn't make you a pilot. How many know that? Like, so I could see you at the museum of flight every day, but I'm not to assume now you're a pilot. You can go to church every day, but I'm not to assume that you're really a Christian because a Christian is someone who's like Christ. None of us can do it on our own strength. We have to be born again. That's the concept of John. It means spiritually you're changed and you're forgiven of your sin. Uh, Number two, if you are here and you would say, I have had a definitive moment where I've accepted Christ. I really have become a Christian, but I would be honest and say I'm not living like it. You need to repent of that lifestyle. You're on dangerous ground. I don't know if you're unsaved. I don't know where you are in the relationship But I can tell you right now, you're lying about being who you say you are. You're really not who you're supposed to be. I am not a king. If I went around telling you I'm King Joe of the land of Elgin, I mean, that's goofy, isn't it? That's what it's like when you're saying I'm a Christian, but you're living in sin. It's goofy. We as Christians are to live like Christ and not live in repetitive sin. And then lastly, if you're here and you would say, Pastor, okay, I get it. I've been to this church for a while. I have accepted Christ and I'm living holy. My question to you now is, is your joy complete by you sharing it with others? Is your joy complete? Because John had it, right? Like John had the message. He's good. He's got it. No darkness in God. We're purified. I'm living right. But what was John still doing? John was going out preaching the word. Because he wanted others to come into that fellowship. He wanted others to share in his relationship. So do that today. Number one, if you don't know Jesus, come to know Jesus. Number two, if you say you know him, you're not living like him, repent. Come to live like him. And number three, if you are knowing and living like him, tell the world about him. Amen? Let's stand up and give it up for Jesus today. We thank you, Lord, for your word from the Apostle John. Altar workers, would you come? We'll pray and dismiss. Those who want to come for prayer are more than welcome to find one of these prayer workers. Otherwise, we'll see you at life groups. Father, thank you for this awesome service today. Even as I'm praying right now, search your heart. Father, we thank you for this service. 
Speak your word to those it applies to right now, those who need to come and accept you. God, may they start to pray even right now, prayers of repentance. May they start to confess you as their Lord. Just say it, Jesus, forgive me, I believe in you. Start right there. Lord, I pray for those who are backsliders or lukewarm. They've been lying on you, Jesus. I pray they repent of those sins. Truly get purified. And Lord, today I pray that all of our joys will be complete because we tell the world about you. We tell the world about your great love. We tell the world about your great forgiveness. We tell the world about how you welcomed us in to fellowship with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen. Can you bless them one more time, church? God bless you. You are dismissed, but we're going to keep worshiping. If you'd like to join us or get prayer, please come up. Otherwise, we'll see you throughout the week. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.